1: Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13.
0: April 1978, approximately 6 a.m. Kristen Skudgel, a first year recruit with the Way International's Way Corps leadership program, was getting dressed when her door burst open. Her corps leader stormed in wearing military fatigues.
1: He shouted at Skedgel and the other followers that their spiritual leader, the Doctor, had ordered them to conduct an exercise of extreme national security. Any mistakes could lead to the destruction of the Way Corps or the entire United States.
0: Moments later, Skedgel and the others were marching through the muddy Kansas countryside with no idea where they were going or what the doctor would command when they reached their destination.
1: She only knew that the weight of the world was on her shoulders, and for the doctor, she was willing to fight to her death.
0: Hi, I'm Greg Polson.
1: And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
0: And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Today we finish our deep dive on The Way International, an evangelical Christian cult formed by the son of an Ohio farmer in 1942. At its peak around 1980, The Way International was one of the largest and wealthiest cults on earth.
1: You can listen to previous episodes of Cults as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday.
0: A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five star review.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: The Way International began as a biblical research and teaching ministry in Payne, Ohio in 1942. It was founded by Victor Paul Weirwill a disgruntled pastor of the Evangelical and Reformed Church who believed that God had shown him biblical secrets from the first century
1: AD. Last week, we talked about V. P. Weirwill, his upbringing, his psyche, and how historical circumstances helped transform him into an international spiritual phenomenon.
0: Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the cult and some of its members exploring how Weirwill's paranoia and institutionalized methods of control ultimately led to the cult's demise.
1: Weirwill began his career in 1941 as pastor of a small evangelical and reformed church in Payne, Ohio. He was 25 years old and married to his high school sweetheart, Dotsie, with whom he had two young children.
0: Within months, it became clear that Weirwill wasn't cut out for the traditional ministry, He often argued with church authorities and was so disappointed by his congregation's lack of enthusiasm that he wanted to quit. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this
1: show. Thanks, Greg. Weirwill said he was disillusioned early on in his career because his congregation didn't have enough faith in him. The fact that he expected to be admired after only a few months in the ministry suggests that he may have had an unrealistic sense of superiority, what psychologists refer to as grandiosity. According to Dr. Elsa Roningstam. Grandiosity is a need for praise and recognition disproportionate to one's actual achievements. Not only is it a key component of narcissistic personality disorder, a disorder common among the cult leaders we've discussed on this show, but in some cases, grandiosity may also be linked to paranoia. We'll hear more about that later in this episode.
0: Despite these inauspicious beginnings, Weirwald didn't give up his day job right away. Instead, on October 2nd, 1942, He told God in a prayer that he was going to quit the ministry unless God gave him some real answers.
1: According to Weirwill, the threat paid off. Not only did God answer, but Weirwill claimed he responded out loud, promising to teach Weirwill biblical truths that had not been known since the first century AD. To those who believed it, this story served as proof that Weirwill was God's chosen prophet.
0: But for years after the incident, which came to be known as the 1942 Promise, believers were a few and far between. By 1957, Weirwill had only gathered a dozen followers, fewer than one for each year of his ministry. So he decided to amp up his marketing efforts by collecting his teachings into an audio course called Power for Abundant Living.
1: Power for Abundant Living, or PFAL, taught that conventional translations of the Bible were inaccurate and that a new interpretation, which Weirwill alone could provide, would give believers the power to experience spiritual gifts, such as the power of healing and speaking in tongues. In
0: 1967, Weirwill took his audio course a step further. With the assistance of his follower David Anderson, who helped raise $67,000, almost half a million dollars by today's standards, Weirwill produced a film version of PFAL.
1: This 36-hour course featured Weirwill sitting in a chair talking about the principles of The Way. The videos became the tool by which he converted nearly 100,000 people to The Way over the next 15 years. Tonight in the opening session of this foundational class
0: here at the headquarters of The Way, I turned to my syllabus which every person in the class will have tomorrow night.
1: According to psychologist John Patrick Peterson, people who join cults often do so because they're looking for solutions to their fears and anxieties. The 1960s were a period of social upheaval in America, and between racial conflicts, political unrest, and the Vietnam War, many Americans were looking for just the kind of answers Weirwill claimed to provide. In
0: 1968... Weirwill traveled to Northern California to meet leaders of the Jesus Movement, a free-spirited Christian evangelical movement that had arisen in response to the Troubled Era. Armed with his PFAL film reels, Weirwill managed to convert two key leaders of the movement, radio DJ Steve Heefner and Heefner's longtime friend Jim Dupe. A few short months later, Dupe founded The Way West in Mill Valley, California, and Heefner established the Way East in Rye, New York. These two ministries became the Way's first recruitment centers. Drawn in by the promise of a faith that offered solutions to life's toughest problems, young people flocked to these early meetings, eager to absorb Weirwill's teachings. At last, after more than 25 years of effort, Weirwill had the adoring audience he'd been searching for.
1: Historical circumstances clearly increased people's interest in the Way International. But it's important to note that Weirwill didn't gain a following by chance. Instead, he pursued and collected followers by way of deliberate, targeted marketing. Branding experts Alex Wipperforth and John Grant have identified four parallel tactics in both successful marketing and cult indoctrination. The first tactic is selecting a recruit. Typically, cults target people who are going through life changes, like college students leaving home for the first time. They also rely heavily on word of mouth. A person is much more likely to buy into an idea if all their friends are doing it.
0: Word of mouth advertising led hundreds of people to the way in the late 1960s. Among them was 14-year-old Kristen Skedgel, a troubled girl from Rye, New York, who went with a group of friends to hear Steve Heefner talk about Jesus. Describing that first meeting, Skedgel wrote, quote, I may not know what it all means, this Jesus talk, but it must be right. Everyone I look up to is hopping on this train, and I want to be part of it, end quote.
1: Sounds like Skedgel was just the kind of recruit Weirwill was looking for. After selecting a recruit, the next step of indoctrination is called love bombing. When recruits attend their first meeting, they're instantly overwhelmed by a sense of welcome and belonging, The Way, for example, became known as the kissing cult, due to members' habit of greeting each other with a kiss on the lips.
0: Sadly, this loving way of greeting fellow Way members would later become a gateway to assault. Many female ex-members of the cult recall the shock they felt when male cult members, including Weirwill and his older brother Harry, both in their 60s, used the kiss as an excuse to force their tongues into women's mouths.
1: That's a far cry from loving. But assaults like this rarely, if ever, occurred during the love-bombing stage. Instead, they occurred after the final two steps of indoctrination, by which time the women had been brainwashed to believe that such behavior was acceptable. Whipperfirth and Grant refer to these two final steps as baiting the hook and matriculation. Baiting the hook in both advertising and cult behavior means offering a recruit something good up front to reel them in and make them a lifetime customer.
0: Charlene Edge, who joined the way in 1970 and spent 17 years as a ministry leader, wrote a detailed account of how this tactic worked in her memoir, Undertow. According to Edge, she was recruited in 1970 by a young man at her college named Doug. Doug caught her attention by claiming his spiritual leader had taught him how to perform miracles. When Edge naturally wanted to know more, Doug invited her to a friendly gathering and Bible study.
1: Edge went to the meeting where she found the atmosphere welcoming and casual. Just as Bible study was about to begin, however, the gathering was interrupted by a commotion at the door.
0: Doug walked in with two players from the college football team. One of the players, Gerald, had his arm in a sling. Edge overheard whispers that Gerald had broken his collarbone during the game that night and that the other football player had just miraculously healed it in the parking lot. Doug told Charlene that he had seen it happen and described the healing so vividly that she believed him.
1: This was a prime example of what psychologist Robert J. Lifton calls mystical manipulation meeting coordinators used the football game, which attendees knew had actually taken place, to design a coincidence that appeared to prove their claims of divine power. By introducing recruits to an injured man who had just been miraculously healed, way leaders gave people like Charlene the false impression that everything they did was sanctioned by God.
0: Obviously, not all recruits took the bait. Those who didn't weren't invited back. But for those who did, like Charlene and thousands of others, there was one final step to becoming part of the way.
1: This step, referred to as matriculation, is an intense, isolating period in which recruits are broken down and rebuilt as believers. For initiates of the way, this process took place through PFAL. PFAL was mandatory for anyone who wanted to become a true member of the way. Students were required to pay for the course and to complete it on schedule in a closed group setting. Basically, what this meant was that they were shut into a dark room and made to listen to Weirwill's voice for three hours a day, six days a week.
0: Local way leaders had strict orders from Weirwill not to run the course until a certain number of students had signed up, in Edge's case 20. So after convincing initiates that PFAL could give them mystical healing powers, group leaders made it temporarily unavailable, thereby increasing its perceived value and forcing initiates to start recruiting others before they had taken a single class. The tactic went over like gangbusters. In 1969, 380 people took PFAL at $40 a person. In 1970, the number doubled. By 1983, The Way claimed that over 100,000 people had taken the course worldwide, and in 1984, they reported an income of $27.1 million, nearly $65 million today.
1: For people interested in the Way, PFAL served as a rite of passage, but their obligation to the ministry didn't stop there. In 1970, Weirwill began offering additional courses, such as Dealing with the Adversary, Christian, Family, and Sex, and Advanced Power for Abundant Living. He also created an international missionary program called Way Over the World, or WOW. And for the truly devoted, Weirwill designed the most intense indoctrination program of all, the Way Corps.
0: The Way Corps began in 1970 as a two-year training program for a select few men and women who Weirwald deemed worthy of learning God's deepest secrets. Participants were required to devote themselves entirely to the year-round program, financing their own participation through sponsorship or private funds.
1: A typical day in the Way Corps meant getting up at 4 a.m. doing physical fitness training, breakfast, manual labor, Bible and language studies, meetings with Weirwill, and research and study until midnight. Ironically, although Weirwill was known for dodging farm work as a kid, he was adamant about the manual labor component of the program.
0: The point of these tough chores and 20-hour days was supposedly to prepare followers for leadership roles in the ministry. But the militaristic discipline, sleep deprivation, and mandatory groupthink served an additional purpose, brainwashing.
1: According to psychologist Robert J. Lifton, brainwashing, formally called coercive persuasion or thought reform, occurs in two basic stages, confession and re-education. During the confession stage, recruits are coerced into denouncing their past lives, often including family and friends.
0: While the Way officially said they had no interest in separating people from their families, WayCorp trainees had to live at headquarters. They were kept so busy they couldn't have communicated with outsiders even if they wanted to.
1: And once Weirwill had perfected the training program, few tried. Nearly all the Waycorps trainees reached the second stage of thought reform, re education. Cut off from their past, they were taught a new way of thinking consistent with the cult's beliefs. According to Lifton, the goal of re education is total control.
0: Weirwill's Waycorps was much more than a leadership program. It was a training facility designed to transform thinking individuals into mindless participants in religious fraud. It was from this pool of recruits that Weirwill would go on to select his closest disciples, those who would serve as his bodyguards, soldiers, and sex slaves.
1: We'll learn more about this elite group of recruits in a moment.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: The Way International began its first real ascent in 1968 when its founder, VP Weirwill, was 52 years old. The 1960s were all about free love, and with a blossoming crew of wide-eyed young people running around the farm, it's not surprising that Weirwill's thoughts began to turn to sex.
0: Earlier in his ministry, Weirwill avoided the subject of sex in his teaching, maybe because his following consisted of a handful of old-timers from rural Ohio. But as the way grew from a few members to a few thousand, Weirwill climbed onto the free-love bandwagon. He began to teach that extramarital sex was not only acceptable, but beneficial for those whose spirits were right with God. He also taught that women should be subservient to men, sexually and otherwise, and that as the man of God, his sexual needs were of supreme importance.
1: As with many other cult leaders we've discussed on this show, Weirwill's teachings on sexuality led to rampant abuse of the cult's female members. Weirwill claimed a divine right to choose any woman he wanted from the way's ranks, and he encouraged other men in the cult to do the same. As for the women, Weirwill exploited their faith to shame them into giving him and other men in the cult sexual favors. Kristen Skedgel, whom Weirwill coerced into a sexual relationship when she was a teenager and he was about 60, said Weirwill quoted the Bible verse, quote, "...all things are pure to the pure." End quote. In other words, if Skedgel or any other woman felt uncomfortable having sex with him, it was because she was impure, not Weirwill.
0: According to former members' accounts, Weirwell may have used this rationale to manipulate hundreds or even thousands of women into sexual relationships, and because members of the Way Corps were mostly under his control, Weirwell chose many of his conquests from their ranks. Skedgel describes a period in the mid-1970s when Weirwell's motor coach practically had a revolving door. Women in the Way Corps would go in, service their leader, and go back to work without saying a word
1: one of the reasons for this mandatory silence could be that Weirwill was married. His wife, Dotsie, was a strong, intelligent woman who had stood by him for more than 25 years while he struggled to establish himself as a spiritual leader. She had even worked to support Weirwill while he was getting his Master of Theology degree from Princeton Theological Seminary.
0: Dotsie seems to have been slightly removed from the inner workings of the ministry. She's often depicted as little more than a shadow arriving to welcome recruits to headquarters, providing a meal, and then fading into the background. So maybe Weirbel kept his infidelity a secret to protect her. And it's even possible she really didn't
1: know. However, in a heartbreaking story recounted in Carl Kaler's memoir, The Cult That Snapped, a former member, dubbed Anne Informant, suggests otherwise. Anne was a graduate of the 11th Way Corps. In the late 1970s, she was raped by the region coordinator and reached out to Weirwill to report the attack. Weirwill invited her into his motor coach to talk it over. When she got there, she found the doctor waiting for her, stark naked. He greeted her with the phrase, quote, ''Do you like to swallow?'' end quote. Then Mrs. Weirwill walked in. Anne and the doctor were in the back of the motor coach. Weirwill told Anne not to move and to keep quiet. But instead, Anne walked out, right past Weirwill's wife.
0: Later, Anne went to Mrs. Weirwill and promised that she had done nothing with doctor. In response, Kayla recounted, quote, Mrs. Weirwill never said a word. She just reached across the desk, took Anne's hand, and wept in silence, wiping her eyes with one tissue after another, end quote.
1: By the time an informant or anyone else got close enough to Weirwill to be selected as his sexual partner, they had already gone through an extensive indoctrination process. But just in case anyone was tempted to kiss, or be kissed, and tell, Weirwill came up with another idea to keep his secrets safe, the lockbox.
0: Weirwill depicted the lockbox as a special gift for his followers. If anyone needed to get something off their chest, they could tell the doctor about it, and he would put it in his lockbox, to which he said there was no key. The lockbox, in other words, was like a confessional.
1: Weirwill said the lockbox was a way for followers to safely confess their sins, but in reality, it was a concept used to silence them. Numerous women state that after having sex with them, Weirwill would tell them to put this in their lockbox, in other words, to tell no one.
0: Memories of abuse weren't the only things Weirwill wanted to keep secret. Throughout the 1970s, as the Way's membership grew into the tens of thousands and their revenues into the tens of millions, so did public scrutiny from the media, law enforcement, and the IRS. Weirwell grew increasingly paranoid of various groups, which he believed are out to destroy the Way.
1: These groups included everyone from Jewish people and gay people to the Illuminati.
0: Most of all, Weirwill feared and vilified communists. He believed a communist takeover was imminent, and when it occurred, the way would come under direct attack. This meant his followers had to be ready.
1: In the mid-1970s, Weirwill began holding top secret meetings in the farmhouse basement late at night. In these meetings, Weirwill would work himself into a drunken rage, railing against his enemies and calling on the Way Corps to do whatever it took to save the ministry. This included stockpiling dry goods and weapons, as well as attending firearms training, which Weirwill introduced as a mandatory component of the Way Corps in 1977.
0: Weirwill also ordered the creation of multiple wilderness camps across the United States. He claimed the camp's purpose was to teach Way followers basic survival skills, but in fact, they were paramilitary training grounds designed to prepare followers for a communist invasion.
1: In 1975, Way Corps graduate L. Craig Martindale and Way West founder Jim Dupe were chosen alongside several others to participate in a top-secret wilderness camp. To get there, they had to hitchhike over 2,000 miles from the way's Ohio headquarters to a remote location in the Sierra National Forest. Upon their arrival, they were surrounded by men wearing army fatigues and carrying rifles. These armed guards marched the participants into what Dupe later described as concentration camps, Wire Cages, where they were given copies of Marx's Communist Manifesto and told the only way out was to sign a paper denouncing Jesus Christ.
0: Wire Cages, armed guards, forced confessions. Even for a man who hates communists, this feels a little extreme.
1: Believe it or not, that wasn't the worst of it. Martindale and his cohorts at least had a sense of what they were getting into. Not all Weirwill's followers did
0: in April of 1976, Kristen Skedgel was training with the Way Corps at the Way College in Emporia, Kansas. She was getting ready for breakfast one morning when the Corps leader burst into her room wearing army fatigues and shouted at everyone to grab their backpacks and move out.
1: Minutes later, Skedgel and her fellow trainees were marching through the muddy Kansas countryside, surrounded by men in fatigues who threatened them if they got out of line. No one told them where they were going or how long they would be there, and recruits were not allowed to ask questions.
0: After a few hours' march, Skedgel and the others reached an abandoned barn in the woods, where they were divided into two groups, guards and prisoners. Skedgel was assigned the role of a prisoner. For the next several days, she was subjected to exposure, forced labor, and starvation, just as if she really were a prisoner of war.
1: As for the guards, their role was easier than Skedgell's, but perhaps no less bizarre. They stayed in shelters built by the so-called prisoners and fired guns into the air to keep everyone in line. They were also instructed to threaten to kill the prisoners or their beloved doctor if anyone refused to obey orders.
0: After several days of forced labor and intensifying threats, one of the prisoners snapped. He screamed and lunged at the guards, shouted that he would never give in, and ran off into the woods. Shots were fired. The camp fell into chaos. Skedgel noted that this was clearly not part of the exercise.
1: The point of the exercise is open to debate, but Skedgel's conclusion to the story offers a clue. After the guards regained control, the exercise went on for several days. When the recruits were finally allowed to return to headquarters, they found Weirwill there to welcome them home himself. Weirwill praised the recruits for their dedication and challenged anyone who had doubts to come forward. This indicates that the exercise was an extreme test of the Way Corps' loyalty. The fact that no one came forward proved that they were all under Weirwill's control.
0: By the late 1970s, VP Weirwill was at the height of his power and his paranoia. The way international owned two colleges, multiple training camps, and a few private jets, but Weirwill was convinced the way was under attack, and he responded by increasing security, establishing a police force at Way headquarters, and selecting Way follower Chris Gear as his personal bodyguard.
1: In part 1 of this series, we raised the possibility that Weirwill's paranoia may have been caused by excessive alcohol intake. It may also have been a reaction to a deep-down awareness that his ministry was built on fraud. But there's a third possibility as well. Doctor was dying. Weirwill had a rare, slow-moving form of ocular cancer, which may have begun as early as 1967. By the late 1970s, his cancer had developed to the point that he was forced to have one eye surgically removed.
0: Weirwill taught that cancer was caused by devil spirits, so he obviously couldn't tell anyone about his disease. Not only would it mean admitting he was possessed by Satan, but it would also mean admitting he didn't have the healing powers his followers thought he had.
1: The combined need for secrecy and fear of death may have contributed to or even caused Weirwill's paranoia. In a 2016 study of patients with terminal cancer, doctors Lawrence Rambeau Jean-Marie Gomas and Michael Reich noted that some patients faced with a terminal diagnosis react with a psychotic break. This break can result in paranoid delusions similar to those experienced by Weirwill. Thus, in the late 1970s, just as his ministry was entering its peak, Weirwill may have imagined enemies everywhere as a subconscious defense against the enemy in his own body.
0: In 1977, Weirwill suffered a crippling personal and professional blow when his brother and longtime supporter Harry passed away at the age of 70. Harry's death seemed to serve as an early warning to Weirwill, who quietly began shuffling the ministry leadership in search of a successor.
1: His first choice to take over leadership of The Way was his oldest son Don, known to the family as Donnie. Donnie hadn't been involved with The Way growing up, But in 1974, he had accepted a job as Associate Dean of the Way College. In 1977, Weirwill made him Secretary Treasurer of the entire ministry.
0: To Weirwill's disappointment, Donnie was more of a numbers man than a cult leader. He showed little interest in following in his dad's footsteps. And former members agree that he clearly wasn't cut out for it. So Weirwill had a second choice, L. Craig Martindale one of the top all-time graduates of the Way Corps.
1: By 1977, Martindale had already made a name for himself in the Way as a dynamic preacher and a great motivator of the masses. Weirwill gave him the position of Way Corps director, which put Martindale in charge of indoctrinating the cult's top leadership. This made Martindale a key figure in the preservation of Weirwill's legacy.
0: Clearly, when it came to the question of Weirwill's successor, Martindale was the front-runner. But there was a third possibility as well, Weirwill's personal bodyguard, Chris Gear, Described by his fellow Way members as an odd but loyal jack-of-all-trades, Gear impressed Weirwill with his total subservience. He may not have had the makings of a preacher, but unlike Martindale and Donnie, Gear was completely willing to be controlled.
1: By 1981, Weirwill could avoid the facts no longer. The ocular cancer had spread throughout his body. No longer able to keep up with the physical demands of the ministry, Weirwill had to decide who was the best man to take his place, his son, his protege, or his most faithful disciple.
0: Donnie, Martindale, and Gear. These were the three men Weirwill considered worthy of carrying his legacy into the future. But the trouble was, Weirwill's legacy was based on secrets, exploitation, and lies. And the very men he had chosen to protect it were about to tear his cult apart.
1: We'll watch these three men battle for the top in just a moment.
0: Now back to the story.
1: Loy Craig Martindale was born on November 4, 1948, in the old trading post town of Bartlesville, Oklahoma. He was raised in the Baptist Church and discovered the Way while attending the University of Kansas around 1970.
0: Like Weirwill, Martindale was a passionate sportsman. He played college football and even competed in the 1969 Orange Bowl. His love of sports would have a powerful impact on his time in the Way.
1: Martindale joined the Second Way Corps in 1972 and quickly became known as a brilliant speaker and a fanatical devotee of Weirwill's teachings. In addition to attending Wilderness Camp in 1975 and becoming director of the Way Corps in 1977, Martindale was such a staunch advocate of Weirwill's sexual policies that many former members claim he abused more women than Weirwill himself.
0: As Martindale climbed the ministry ranks at headquarters, Chris Gere, his polar opposite, was slowly ingratiating himself into the Way leadership in Rye, New York. Steve Hefner, the radio DJ who had founded the Way East, considered Gere to be exceptionally trustworthy, sharp, and a super administrator. Administrator being a code word in the Way for someone who lacked a gift for public speaking.
1: Around 1977, Weirwill chose Gear to be his personal driver and armed bodyguard. By this time, Weirwill was living in the motor coach and conducted most of his business there, including his sexual trysts with female followers. As Weirwill's driver, Gear became his leader's personal lockbox, the keeper of Weirwill's darkest secrets.
0: Weirwill found Gear's loyalty endearing, but ultimately he decided it wasn't enough to make Gear a man of God. On October 2nd, 1982, the 40th anniversary of the 1942 promise, Weirwill officially named L. Craig Martindale president of The Way International.
1: Martindale took to the role of cult leader like a fish to water. Already revered as an exceptional preacher, Martindale adopted Weirwill's practice of reinterpreting the Bible to suit his own needs. He borrowed a biblical phrase Weirwill had once interpreted as Athletes of the Spirit, and began to claim that this was the most accurate translation of a phrase often used to describe God's followers.
0: Martindale's claim that the Bible calls believers Athletes of the Spirit had no basis in fact. But then again, neither did many of Weirwill's teachings. The important thing was that Martindale was Weirwill's hand-picked successor, and that meant the brainwashed way followers would believe anything he said.
1: While Martindale was busy teaching tens of thousands of Way followers to call themselves athletes of the spirit, Gear was still grinding away at doing Weirwill's bidding. Weirwill had always wanted to have global reach, and in these last few years of his life, he gave Gear the job of making it happen.
0: Technically speaking, the Way had been international since 1970, when Australian Reverend Peter Wade, one of Weirwill's earliest followers, had established the Way Australia. But Wade and the doctor disagreed on how donations collected by local ministries should be spent, and Weirwell had kicked Wade out of the cult back in 1978. Now, in the 1980s, he made a renewed effort to expand, sending gear to Canada and Europe in hopes of establishing Way ministries there.
1: But gear ran into one problem after the next. Both Canada and England turned down the Ways' requests, as they considered the Way to be a destructive cult— Weirwill ordered Gear to appeal their decisions, but the countries held firm. Not until 1984 did Gear finally manage to found the Way Europe in the village of Gartmore, Scotland.
0: Gartmore was a far cry from the cosmopolitan hub Weirwill had been hoping for. A tiny remote town with bad weather and limited resources, it represented a regression for Weirwill who had come a long way since the days of his 21-person pastorate in Van Wert, Ohio. It was also a logistical nightmare. Despite nearly round-the-clock effort, it took Gear and his wife several months just to install a telephone.
1: Meanwhile, as the Gears were struggling to bring Weirwill's dreams of global dominance to life, Martindale made his mark in a very different way. Around 1983, he produced a two-hour audio class on Athletes of the Spirit, the phrase he had picked up from Weirwill's teaching nearly a decade before.
0: Just like the PFAL, Martindale's tapes focused on individual phrases in the Bible, claiming they were translated incorrectly, and Martindale's translation was the God-given truth. Specifically, Martindale claimed that any phrase Weirwill had interpreted as soldiers of God should really be translated as athletes of the Spirit.
1: This sounds like incredibly dull listening, and to most audiences, it probably would have been. But to followers of The Way, who had spent years in required weapons training and disaster drills, it was exciting to think of themselves as something other than soldiers. Martindale's tapes sold out year after year in The Way's bookstores. And around 1984, when he was 36 years old, he began to dream bigger.
0: Martindale was overseeing the construction of a state-of-the-art auditorium at headquarters, scheduled to be inaugurated in May of 1985. He decided to create an Athletes of the Spirit dance production, in which leotard-wearing believers would compete with devil spirits for supremacy on the $10 million auditorium's main stage.
1: This was something Weirwill clearly would have never imagined. And according to Gear, he wasn't happy about it. But by this time, Weirwill was so sick that even if he hated the idea, he was too weak to shut it down.
0: In March of 1985, Victor Paul and Dotsie Weirwill traveled to Scotland to see what the Gears had done with the Way Europe. As usual, Dotsie faded into the background shortly after their arrival. But Weirwill spent weeks riding around the grounds with gear and discussing the future of the ministry. By now, Weirwill was extremely weak. He and Gear often had to stop what they were doing so Weirwill could go back to his room and rest. Eventually, the truth became too obvious to hide, and Weirwill admitted to Gear that he was dying.
1: Gear wasn't exactly startled by the news. Not only was Weirwill fading before his eyes, but Gear had spent years as Weirwill's bodyguard, milling over scenarios that could lead to the doctor's death. He told Weirwill he was ready to receive his final instructions. These instructions, which Gear would write down and read aloud to the Way membership almost a year later, would turn out to contain the seeds of the Way's destruction.
0: But Gear didn't share Wearwolf's instructions with anyone just yet. Instead, when the Weirwills traveled home, Gear went with them. Dotsie went back to the farmhouse. Doctor went to his motor coach, where Gear sat by his side day and night, preparing for the end.
1: It came about a month later. On May 20th, 1985, at the age of 68, Weirwill passed away from ocular melanoma with the faithful Gear by his side. Officially, the Way members were told that Weirwill had gone to sleep.
0: So Weirwill's life ended just as his ministry began, with a lie. But the Way itself was still going strong. Four days after Weirwill's death, Athletes of the Spirit premiered in the WOW Auditorium with Martindale dancing the lead.
1: The fact that Martindale performed in a dance show so soon after Weirwill's death is evidence of how sure he was of his position. Martindale had been the cult's leader for three years by now, and things seemed to be going well. Membership numbers were stable, and The Way reported over $30 million in income in 1985. That's almost $70 million today.
0: Yet, The Way was a house of cards destined to fall. The first card fell in late 1985, when the IRS revoked the Way's tax-exempt status. This was a major blow to the Way's public image, as well as its finances, and it forced Martindale to have serious conversations with Way leaders about where the money was going.
1: To things like dance productions in $10 million auditoriums, for instance, the next card fell on April 23, 1986, and it was a big one. Chris Gere came forward with a written account of Weirwill's last days in a document he called Passing of a Patriarch. He said it contained Weirwill's final instructions for the way.
0: Martindale agreed to let Gear read Passing of a Patriarch aloud on Way Corps graduation night, another sign that he had no idea trouble was coming. Gear's speech was broadcast to Way groups all over the country. He quoted the doctor directly, saying that Martindale... Donnie, and Weirwill's best friend, Howard Allen, had all betrayed him. Weirwill said, quote, "...today the way harbors more hypocrites than believers. I would say there is almost no one at the top levels that you could really trust." End quote. Former members have described these words as a bomb going off in the auditorium. Charlene Edge said no one spoke or even moved for several minutes after Gear finished reading. The membership sat in stunned silence, unable to react to what they had just heard.
1: To understand why Gears' paper had such a devastating impact on the way, it's important to consider how conditioned cult members were to believe that their leaders were infallible. Weirwill was the man of God, and he had personally selected Martindale to take his place. If Weirwill was now calling Martindale an untrustworthy hypocrite, that meant everything was open to question. Psychologist Robert J. Lifton, who spent 17 months studying the effects of mind control on subjects in communist China, found that although brainwashing can temporarily destroy a person's sense of self, the effects don't necessarily last forever. Once the line of control is broken, subjects begin to notice things that conflict with what they've been conditioned to believe. Eventually, if this process is not interrupted, Formerly brainwashed individuals regained the ability to think for themselves.
0: This appears to be what happened in the Way. As top leaders turned on each other with public accusations of mismanagement, fraud, and abuse, members began to question their leader's authority. And without a single overpowering voice telling members what to believe, nothing prevented them from realizing that the Way was not the divine solution it was cracked up to be.
1: Members abandoned the cult by the thousands. Martindale, finally realizing his position as cult leader was at stake, responded just as he had learned from Weirwill by purging the ranks and blaming an imaginary enemy. In
0: 1989, Martindale publicly denounced Gear and ordered Way members to cease all contact with anyone who believed him. He ordered Way staff members to write a letter of allegiance to him, and when thousands refused, he fired them.
1: In the early 1990s, amid rapidly falling membership numbers, Martindale began writing vitriolic letters accusing all defectors of being depraved homosexuals and called on believers to purge them from their ranks.
0: The viciousness of these attacks suggests that Martindale had an intense fear of losing control, yet lose control he did. Members continued to flee the cult. Some followed gear who formed a separate branch of the Way. Others formed their own offshoots, or abandoned the faith for good.
1: With so many fewer members selling classes and bringing in donations, the Way's revenues plummeted. Martindale was forced to sell off property, including the Way's colleges, camps, private jets, and Weirwill's private motor coach.
0: At last, in the year 2000, Weirwill's true legacy was revealed. Former members Paul and Fern Allen sued Al Craig Martindale and several of the remaining Way leaders for $54 million, accusing them of a pattern of corrupt activity, including acts of theft, fraud, coercion, assault, and rape.
1: The Allens won their case. As a result, Martindale was forced to resign the presidency on April 20, 2000, and the Way virtually ceased to exist.
0: More than 18 years have passed since Weirwill's chosen successor resigned in disgrace, and the spell Weirwill once held over his followers is mostly broken.
1: Yet some still believe in Weirwill's teachings. A few still attend meetings where they teach a form of spirituality they learned in PFAL. Others visit online forums and write wistfully of the early days when free love and miracles abounded.
0: Officially, The Way International is now led by Rosalie Rivenbark, a woman who served as vice president under Martindale and who, ironically, was once rumored to be his wife's lover.
1: But the cult is only a shadow of its former self. Although The Way claims not to keep an official membership roster, estimates suggest enrollment has dwindled to a few thousand worldwide.
0: Nevertheless, The Way International's website and social media extend a warm welcome to all those willing to believe and to dedicate their lives to the ministry founded by Victor Paul Weirwill.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode.
0: Some of you have asked how you can help the show. And if you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: We'll see you next time.
1: Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Megan Dane and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.